Kubernetes community, and welcome to another Pod CTL Basics podcast. You know, as you've, you've listened to some of our earlier ones, these are sort of our quick short takes, cover some of the basics to get you up to speed on the basics with containers and Kubernetes. Uh, today's show specifically, we're going to talk about how an application gets into a container or how you would containerize an app. So let's just start there. If today I have an application that runs on a Linux host, let's just assume that, how would I get that application in the most basic sense into a container? What do I need to do? The first thing you need is a a starting point uh, from an image. So this is where sort of like your base image comes from. So there's tons of uh, pre-existing ones, uh, and that's a that's a whole other discussion of you know wh- well which image do I start with? You know there's Alpine and you know CentOS, Rail, Ubuntu, all these different starting images. So first place you need is here's my base image where I want to start from, and then I need to tell it how to assemble that container. Okay, and so let's just take maybe one of the most common scenarios. You're going to Go find a, a base image. So you're going to pick the Linux that you like. You're going to pick application base image. So something, let's say, like is Nginx, because everybody uses that for demos or WordPress or something. And you're going to kind of assemble those in this thing they call a Docker file or this you know, Docker file being the, an explanation of all the things that you're going to want to do with that application. Yeah, Docker file starts at the top with, hey, here's my here's the image I'm starting from. And then it has a bunch of commands to build the image. Say you're starting with, with Fedora and you want to make this Nginx container. Well, you want to install Nginx. So obviously then you decide I could have the Docker file go and pull down the latest Nginx bits, or I could even just use uh, yum install Nginx, or I just have to figure out how I want to do that. And then I give those commands, and basically in a series of run commands, the the Dockerfile tells the the builder how to assemble the image. So, okay, cool, I have this Fedora here, now what do I do? Right. And then the the Dockerfile, or the thing that sort of identifies the image, can do a lot more things. I mean, I can tell it, like, for example, what passwords and, you know, user secrets and credentials do I want to have to start this? Um, Do I need to have other libraries want to be interacting with this? Maybe it's a a more complicated application that needs to say, give me the latest Java library or give me, you know, this dependency. You can layer these image files and, and then dependencies sort of as complex or as simple as you want to. That's the nice thing is you can build them progressively. So for example, you may like say Ubuntu is your your distribution of choice. You may build your own base image that strips out a lot of things out of it. For example, you can do it via the Docker file or tools like, like Builda is a tool that you can, once you create an image, you can go in and clean stuff out, remove stuff out of it. So you have your, you know, say you want a super skinny Ubuntu base image, and then your first First one is on top of that, you the next thing you want to do is have an image that has some of your you know standard app monitoring tools that you you have some tooling you want to have in there. Well then you can just basically your Docker file for your next image just references that first image as your starting point. So you can always build on top of them and just change layers at the top. And what's nice about that is if you share images, you may share your your Nginx container, but then the person who's using it wants to start it with a different configuration file or something like that, they can kind of just modify that last those last bits. Right. If I can go find a, an image out there, say on the internet, or maybe your, your IT organization is sort of standardized on one. I mean, can anything run in a, in a Linux container? Most things, um, especially when you're, when you're talking about uh, running on a Linux host. And, and the reason I kind of make that slight 
distinction is, you know, my, my day-to-day machine, I use a, a Mac. So technically, when you use Docker or, or Kubernetes or anything locally, the Mac operating system is actually a Unix derivative. It's not Linux. So it starts up a very skinny little Linux VM to actually do the stuff. So I can't access some physical devices, things like that, with that because there's a VM involved also. But on a regular Linux host, you could run almost anything in there by passing the, the various pieces through uh, the host. Some of them are not recommended. Some of them are you know, very insecure. But from a purely can I make it run perspective, you can get almost anything uh, to run in a container. Right. And we always sort of say, you know, start with the concept that if it runs on a Linux host today, um, there's a good chance it'll run in a Linux container kind of as is. You know, obviously, your mileage may vary. There may be variants on that. The other nice thing about that is that also means from a portability sort of slash compatibility perspective, you should be able to run it like on a local host. You should be able to run it on a host in the cloud that gives you, you know, a similar flavor of Linux. You might be able to move it to a different cloud environment that gives you a similar flavor of Linux. The nice thing about containers is from a real base perspective, it gives you that that portability between sort of multiple host environments, multiple cloud environments. To me, that's the real power of containers when it comes to applications is if you think about it, if, let's say you have just a Linux server and you want to install some piece of software. So you go to and you look up, it says, well, it needs these prerequisites. So you need to install these, you know, these uh, Linux libraries or, or these packages. So you install those packages. You can st- try to start the app. There's another missing package you forgot. You put that in. There's a lot of tweaking. And then maybe over time, an upgraded version, it needs a new version or you have to actually go roll back to a previous version, something like that. You don't have a really good idea at any one point in time what it takes to run that app. And the, the beauty of the container is that something like the Docker file is very declarative. It says, start with this OS, then install exactly these bits, then download this, then run this, and it'll run. So it's really that you're picking up all your dependencies and moving them around. So yes, is it technically why I built this on Ubuntu and I'm going to run it on a Fedora host? Like that's cool, but it doesn't even matter if they're all you know the same OSs. It's just the fact that I've captured every dependency, and if say a new version of that software requires a new library or a new package version, I update the Docker file, rebuild it, and then now I have that, and I've captured every dependency basically in a text file. So right. that's really where where it becomes powerful. Yeah, and you don't have as much drift. You don't sort of say, well, I don't know exactly. Exactly what's on that host anymore. You you say, look, declaratively, it's in this Docker file, and we're going to put that on this machine. We're going to get rid of the old one. We're not going to kind of patch it. We're going to get rid of it, build a new one, be good to go. So let's suppose you are a developer and your company is beginning to run containers, and they say, hey, we have this base container image you have to use. It's over in this registry that we we operate, this container registry. Number one, what is a container registry and how is my container ultimately going to interact with that container registry. So a registry is a place to store container images and version them, uh, control access, you know, and more advanced ones can do things like signing of images and things like that. And it's really, it's more not just about registries, but trusted registries. So whenever you run a container, so if you just pull up a, you know, say a Fedora host and say Docker run some container, it'll say it has a local image cache and I'll be like, well, I don't have this image. Let me go download it. So by default to go to a couple different registries, I'll hit some of the Red Hat ones and then hit the docker.io. And that's what it's, it's all about uh, trust. So those are trusted registries, you know, what's in them. So 
if you're running one internally as a as a company, that's you're generally forcing your users to use that registry because you know what images are in there and you know what their contents are. So you're not worried about someone grabbing some random one off the internet with and you don't know what's in it. So as a as a user, whether you're using something like Docker Desktop or OpenShift or whatever you're using, your system has to be pointed at the container registry of choice. And then you're just issuing pull and push commands. So if, if you have rights to put new stuff in there, you can push an image you've built up there. If you have pull rights or read rights, you can say, go run this image and it'll go to that registry and go get it. I think what we're seeing, a couple other things around registries, um, like you mentioned, they're essentially like a big file server, a big FTP server. They're a place where you, you keep all your files. You can version them. You can do scanning of them. You can do content scanning. You can sign them. So you again, you get that trust factor. And then we see a lot of people who are getting more advanced in containers realizing it's good to have my registry somewhat local to my applications because if I'm updating an application and say the, the binary or the, the image that I pull down is kind of big, man, I don't want to pull that from the internet. I want to pull it locally. You know, It's going to get me past all my firewall privileges that I need to, to be required. So we see people typically... Um, having a, a registry embedded into the platform that they run. So in you know in OpenShift's case, uh, it's embedded. Um, in other cases, you can buy or you can download a standalone registry. But we see more and more people using private registries because, again, it helps them. It lets the operations team kind of control it. The security team can keep an eye on it. And you build that level of trust uh, around the registry itself. So I've got a container, got an application in it. It interacted with the registry. It's kind of ready to go. Let's suppose it wants to interact with Kubernetes and say, give me three or four replicas or tell it to be highly available or something like that. Like, how does it do that? Is that kind of just part of that that big Docker or config file or something? So what's in the, the Docker file that builds the image, when the image is done, what you're left with is a file system and a JSON file that has all the metadata about that image, right? What, who made it? What components are in it? What OS is it? What, you know, other configuration things, what command starts it, all those types of things. So the, that's it, right? It doesn't say I want four copies or anything, because it depends if, you know, going back to, you know, if you wanted to make an Nginx container, you wouldn't, you you may not you may use it standalone in dev but you may want you know replicas and prod so um, kubernetes has a concept of a manifest uh, which describes you it's that next level of abstraction so instead of saying run this container you're really saying run this app or kubernetes calls it a pod and you're describing how you want it run so you're saying create what they call a replication controller to make sure that you know replica set that there's at least four of these running at any point in time or i need to connect the volume up because i need to keep persistent data in it or i need to advertise this service to other containers. So I want to create a service. All those things are done through manifests. So just like the the Docker file creates that JSON metadata that describes the, the container itself, the manifest describe the pods and apps the next level up. So the developers, in, in essence, or the DevOps team, whoever's ultimately going to get it into the Kubernetes environment is going to help create that manifest. That manifest is going to kind of describe how the application runs. And then somewhere in there, it's going to say, here's the the way to go get those containers that are going to be the things that, that actually run. It points to you know those Docker files or, or whatever. So it's a little bit of a, of a two-layer system in terms of Kubernetes has a way of describing what it needs to do. And the container has a way of describing the specific application itself. Okay. Yeah, and sense. and under the like, if you think about something like OpenShift, where there's you know an option to do it via GUI or even uh, tools to build the containers on the fly, under the covers there's still kube manifests and you know and Docker files and all that type of stuff. So if you go even in the web interface, you can see what the Kubernetes manifest looks like for something that you built all through a GUI. Right. So that's that's just 
you know, a basic Kubernetes structure. And again, we're seeing as different systems evolve, different services evolve, we're all trying to make it easier for developers to sometimes not have to know about any of that stuff, but also at the same time, like you said, uh, making sure that if people do want to dig into the details of it or do want to kind of handcraft them themselves, the systems are going to accept that as well. So that's that's kind of a cool way that the, the community has evolved and Kubernetes has evolved and so forth. So last question, I have an application by itself. Maybe it doesn't do anything. It has to go interact with a bunch of other services or other applications. Where does container have to know about that? Does the Kubernetes manifest? Like what's the thing that's going to say, oh, here's where the DNS service is, or here's where this queuing service is or something else? Like how, where, where does that get mapped together? Uh, it's a it's a combination. So the container has to be looking for something specific, right? So if you if you put it out, if you tell the the software in your container, look for this IP address. It doesn't matter all the you know kube configs we do. It's still just going to be looking for that IP address. So that's why things like DNS are super you know kube DNS to basically tell it to look for a name of a service instead, and then that way when you publish something as a service, it knows where it finds it automatically, right? When, you know, they, that's why the internet created DNS. There's different technology, but again, it's very declarative. It's all through manifests that describe. So you have a manifest in your manifest, you can talk about a pod, a replica set. Well, then there's a service and you want to kind of advertise, for example, your Nginx, you may want to advertise a service that as a service um, that it's front ending. So other things can, can talk to it. Those are all those things that are, that are created within Kubernetes that describe the whole thing. So at any one point in time, you have basically these detailed YAML manifests and templates that describe not just the individual container, but how it's set up, how it talks to other things, and how to, you know, basically how to rebuild it. Cool. So the system itself sort of has these built-in service discovery mechanisms to help you build more complex applications and ultimately let your application go dynamically find this stuff. The administrators set up the services, the applications are going to go find them, and it's going to help deal with, you know, not only just service discovery, making applications work, but making high availability work and, and all those other types of things as well. So cool. So we, we covered how do you get an app into a container? How does a container work with a registry? What types of apps work with containers? How does containers interact with Kubernetes? Covered a lot in this one. You know, Hopefully the combination of the Linux basics one and this basics one will kind of give you some structure how containers and Kubernetes are going to kind of work together. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Folks, thanks for listening as always. And we look forward to talking to you next time. 